was in the context of Psalm 63. I was in the desert of Judah, which is where this psalm takes place. I had the opportunity to study in Israel, in uh, Jordan, near the border of Syria as well, uh, Syria and Israel. I was studying there with a professor from America who grew up in Jerusalem and ended up coming to America to do his PhD. And one afternoon, we were going to Biblical Dan, which is, if you know the geography of the Holy Land, it's near the border of Syria. And so we jumped in our kind of tour bus. It was a group of Americans with our professor uh, who is from there. We jumped in the van and we got up there and uh, we were just about to get out into this lush, you can see streams and rivers and this beautiful, beautiful place. We were just about to jump out of the the tour bus and to to jump out. And if equipped students at WePM know, I get excited about basically everything. Um, but I was even more excited than I, than I usually am. And uh, I was just about to enter out the door, and the professor said, few lasting instructions for everyone. And I was like, okay, what is this going to be? And he did that every site that we went to. He would, he would give us these kind of last instructions. So I wasn't really paying that much attention. But he said, you know, some years in Dan, some students have gotten lost. He said, so you need to pay attention, extra attention to the group, stay together, and uh, everything's going to be okay. Now I thought to myself, Professor Monson, this is what his name was, you really think a group of American tourists in the middle of Israel, you know, getting out of this big tour bus and standing in, you know, in the middle of these, this big forest, you really think we're going to get lost? And if anybody's going to get lost, it's definitely not going to be me. It's going to be some of the people standing in the back of the bus. But okay, so I get off the bus, and we go out, and, and we're seeing streams and this beautiful, lush wilderness. If you remember First Kings 11, which is this uh, historic moment where actually it's a bad moment in biblical history, where uh, they worship Baal, this is the place that it took place. So I'm opening my Bible, just enjoying this beautiful scenery. And I was up ahead with two other students, and we were kind of leading the way, being very, very excited. And uh, I got to the point where I'm, you know, reading my Bible, looking around, and I had this moment where I realized, I'm by myself. And so I turned around, and I just saw the back of the two students turning, my two friends turning, you know, around the corner. I said, whoa, I better catch up to everybody. And so I start walking, and I turned the corner to find them, and I didn't see anyone. I thought, oh, maybe they turned left. And so I, I went, and I turned left and didn't see anyone. Well, no, it had to be right. And so I go right, and I walk for five minutes, and I walk for 10 minutes, and I walk for 15 minutes, and I started to have that panic feeling. You know that feeling of, like, I'm too close to the Syrian border for my own comfort, that feeling? Starting to have that feeling in my, in my heart. And I started realizing, wow, I'm, I'm kind of lost. And so I start looking around, and so there's some other people there, and yet everyone's speaking Hebrew. Now, I thought to myself, okay, I've taken two, three years of biblical Hebrew, which, uh, which Bible verse says, where's the group of American tourists? And I'm you know, trying to bring it to my mind. And so when that didn't work, I, I thought to myself, well, this place can't be too much different than Wisconsin, right? I mean, in Wisconsin, they take you as a baby and they put you in the middle of the forest and they say, if you find your way out, then you can join the... No, they don't really do that. But it's, it's a pretty rugged place, Wisconsin. So I'm thinking, man, I, if anybody's going to find their way out of this, I'm going to. And so 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, I still hadn't found the group. And I sat down on a bench in the middle of Biblical Dan, near the border of Syria, and I thought to myself, I'm stuck. Have you ever been there in your life? Now, I don't mean have you ever been near the border of Syria with a group of American tourists, but have you ever, have you ever tried avenues in your life? Man, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try that, I'm going to try this. It doesn't work. I'm stuck. Maybe for you it's been losing a job. Maybe that, that, that lost feeling of, is this going to get any better? Maybe it's been searching for a job. Maybe it's been you've been revising for what it feels like years and years. Is this ever going to end? Maybe it's been a, a particular health challenge. 
a family member or, or you yourself where your body's just not working the way it used to, not, not up to your expectation. Maybe you've got a family member that you've been praying for for many, many years that they would come to Christ and it's not working out the way you thought it would. Maybe it's a, a child who's being disobedient, who's not walking with the Lord. Whatever it is, the Bible places this category around these situations in our life and calls it the wilderness. This dry and weary land where we come to our wit's end, where we come to the place where we say, God, I don't know my way out of here. Now for me, I ended up finding the group a little bit after that and kind of was like, oh, I was just looking at that tree over there and got in the back of the group and, and everything was okay. But sometimes life is not that easy. Sometimes we go in this place and doubt and darkness and we don't have a category for what it's like to, to pursue God, to pray, to read our Bible, and yet to still be stuck. King David, in Psalm 63, finds himself both physically and spiritually in the wilderness. He finds himself in the desert of Judah, a dry and weary land, but he also finds himself at one of the lowest place, places in his entire life. And that's where we pick up in Psalm 63. So if you have your Bible... Turn with me to page 579 of the Pew Bible, Psalm 63. This prescript says, A Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. And as you're turning, we're going to see one thing above everything else. We're going to see, if you're, if you're kind of dozing off, if you've had a long day, the one thing that we're going to see is this we must see the wilderness as an opportunity. We must see the wilderness as an opportunity. And as we read our text, you can keep that in mind. David writes, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you when you speak, you speak truthfully. We may base our lives on your word because you know, we know you do not lead us astray. Pray that your spirit would guide us into all truth, that we might follow you and experience you more closely. In Christ's name, amen. I want to first give a flyover of the context because the context of this, I believe, the historical context, is important for us to understand not only the interpretation of the passage, but also how it applies to our lives. So this prescript here, these prescripts in Psalms were added later but are, are very accurate. And we see that it has this organic connection to David's life, right? The desert of Judah. Well, David was in the desert of Judah multiple times in his life. And uh, ultimately, or first of all, we often think, okay, 
where was David in the desert of Judah? The first thing that comes to mind is Saul, right? David and Saul. Saul chases David when he's anointed king. Saul's still king. He runs out in the desert of Judah. But if you look at verse 11 in Psalm 63, it says, the king will rejoice in God. So the king is a positive character here. David wasn't king yet, and Saul was a negative character. So it's probably not when David was in the desert of Judah being chased by Saul. The other situation that comes to mind, and it is the most probable, is when David was being chased by his son Absalom. Do you remember this, this situation? 2 Samuel 6, 2 Samuel 7, we see this big high moment in David's life. The Ark of the Covenant is brought to the city of Jerusalem, and David is the Davidic king. It's this big moment in what we call salvation history, where the presence of God is there in the city of God with God's king, David. And in 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, I will be your father, and you will be my son, and I will not take away my blessing from you like I did from Saul. This high moment in David's life. He is experiencing the spiritual mountaintop time in his life. And yet soon after that, we see David and Bathsheba. You remember the story? David kills Bathsheba's husband, commits adultery with her. That sin affects his firstborn child who is also killed this low point in his life. Then we see two of his children. We see Absalom's brother rapes his sister, and then Absalom murders his brother. If that's not bad enough, this turmoil in David's life, Absalom tries to organize this coup, and he ends up driving David and much of Israel out of Jerusalem, hiding in the Judean wilderness. Unthinkable unthinkable if you were to look at 2 Samuel 6, 2 Samuel 7 and see David on this mountaintop experience David finds himself running from his own son, the king the anointed king, he knows the promises of God he finds himself physically in a dry and weary land and spiritually, God really? This is not what I expected this is not what I had planned for my own life at all George Adam Smith was a 19th century Edinburgh native. Some of you may know his name. He studied at New College and he became principal at University of Aberdeen and, uh, and taught there for many years. And he was one of the first people to go to the Holy Land and to write on the historical geography of that place. When I studied in Divinity School in Chicago, I didn't know he was an Edinburgh native, but we read his book, The Historical Geography of the Holy Land. And he describes the desert of Judah in this way. He says, the wilderness of Judah, he was in the 19th century, in the desert of Judah writing this. The wilderness of Judah carries the violence and desolation of the Dead Sea Valley right up to the heart of the country, to the roots of the Mount of Olives, to within two hours of the gates of Hebron, Bethlehem, and Jerusalem. So very, very close. This howling waste came within reach of nearly every Jewish child. It gave the ancient natives of Judea, as it gives the mere visitor today, the sense of living next door to doom. The sense of how narrow is the border between life and death. The awe of the power of God who can give neighboring regions so opposite character. He turns rivers into a wilderness and water springs into a dry, thirsty ground. This is where David finds himself, driven from Jerusalem into the desert of Judah. And we come to our text where he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So the first thing we see is that the wilderness is an opportunity to thirst for God. 
The wilderness is an opportunity to thirst for God. David's whole world comes crashing down. It's been broadcast on the equivalent of the BBC for everyone in Israel to see this low point in his life. His family, people are thinking, oh, he's not a good father. His job, everything that he sees is just crashing down around him. He's hot, he's thirsty, he's maybe doubting where God is. But what does David do? He thirsts for God. This is classic Hebrew poetry. If you think of English poetry, we often rhyme. We often, uh, we often put that rhyme, if you look in, in modern poetry. But Hebrew doesn't do that. Hebrew repeats things rather than rhyming. One of my professors talked about uh, Hebrew poetry as uh, like a magnifying glass. And it's going to heat it up into a white hot point. It's going to focus your eyes into one specific thing. And what we see here is, is what? Verse 1, my soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you. That repetition brings us to David longing, searching for God. David acknowledges also that he's thirsty. Now, why do, we even, why do I even say that? So many of us, churches here, churches down south, churches across the ocean, we have a hard time acknowledging sometimes that we're not okay. Am I right? If, if I come to you this morning and I shake your hand and I say, uh, how are you this morning? Everything Okay. They, there's a correct answer to that question, right? If I say to you, how are you this morning? What's the right answer? Good, thanks. Everything's good. If you don't answer that question correctly, if you say, you know, I'm just having a tough, I'm just doubting, I'm having a hard time. Wrong answer. That, that's not the right answer, right? We have a hard time saying I'm not okay. We have a hard time saying I'm thirsty. My spiritual ship has run aground. I'm not where I need to be. David, being the king of Israel, acknowledges I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty in this wilderness. And David's in a situation where no one else can deliver him. David's not saying, well, I've got the bus that I could get to the airport, and let's add the trams as well. No, he's got no other way, no other way, bad joke, no other way to get out of the wilderness except for God. He's tried everything else. There's no other way. And he says, God, I want to find you when I'm in this dry and weary land. I want to find you. What do we often do when we're in the wilderness? Jeremiah chapter 2 gives us this fascinating picture of what Israel does when they're in the wilderness. Jeremiah 2, you don't have to turn there, verse 13, it says, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. If you've been... In Israel, if you've been in the Middle East, one of the things you see, it's like Scotland with castles. One of the things you see everywhere in the Middle East is you see cisterns. Because the ability to dig out this big pit in order to catch rainwater, to have water, is the ability to have life. If you have a cistern that leaks, then you don't have life because you can't water your crops, you can't drink water, you can't bathe. A cistern is life. And God says to Israel, not only have you turned from me, which is the spring of living water, you've dug your own cisterns. But not only have you dug your own cisterns, but they're broken cisterns that can't hold water. You turn to things that don't give you life. I turn to things that don't give me life. For some of us, it's a bad relationship. For some of us, it's gossip. For some of us, it's old habits. For some of us, it's pornography. Broken cisterns pride, reputation, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. But David, 
comes into the wilderness and he says, I thirst for God, the living water that doesn't dry up. I think this much is, this much is true. What you search for in the wilderness determines where your hope comes from. What you turn to when you say, I don't have another way out. What you turn to determines where your hope comes from. What do you turn to when your spiritual ship runs aground? What do you turn to when you're in that dry and weary land? David turned to God. Maybe you're not a Christian here tonight. Christopher Hitchens was, was a, a fantastic writer. I say fantastic because his, his writing style was, was amazing. I didn't particularly agree with a lot of his ideas. And he passed away a couple years ago of a tumor in his esophagus. But before he died, he wrote a fascinating book called Mortality. And he kind of chronicled going through this cancer and how it slowly deteriorated his entire body. Mortality was a fascinating book. But he writes this in the introduction. He says, as he's dying, he dies soon after this. He doesn't actually finish the book. Someone has to finish it for him. He says, I'm badly oppressed by the gnawing sense of waste. I had real plans for the next decade and felt I'd worked hard enough to earn it. To the dumb question, why me? The cosmos barely bothers to return the reply, why not? When Christopher Hitchens was in the wilderness, the only thing he had an answer to was, why not? Stuff happens, that's life. You get a tumor, you die, life goes on. So the question is not, Will you be in the wilderness? Whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, no matter what you believe, you will be in the wilderness. There will be a time. You've been there, you will be there. It will happen to all of us. But the question is, will you have a hope? Will you have a spring of living water? Will you have a cistern that does not run dry? David turns to God when he's in the wilderness. The wilderness, number one, is an opportunity to thirst for God. Secondly, the wilderness is an opportunity to be quenched by who God is. Verse 2. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. In the middle of the wilderness, that dry and spiritual place, that dry wilderness, David remembers worshiping God in the temple. David remembers experiencing God's presence. He remembers worshiping God together with God's people. He says, God, I look forward. I see around me. I see this wilderness, but I remember. I remember you outside of this wilderness. I remember experiencing you and worshiping you that you are near. So what's the antidote to despair and being lost in the wilderness? It's remembering who God is. It's seeing God rightly. David knows the truth, that God is still God, even in the midst of the wilderness. God is still God, even when he's not experiencing him, even when he doesn't see him. Because David knows what he believes about God in his head is going to determine what he does with his actions. David knows what he believes about God is going to determine what he does with his actions. See, many of us suffer from that idea that God owes us if we obey him. That if we just follow God closely, then we'll never be in the wilderness. We'll never get that 3 a.m. phone call about the family member who's not supposed to die at 28 years old. If we just obey God and follow him, then we'll never be in that dry and weary land. David knows that's not true. God is still God in the midst of those times. God is good, his character is to be praised whether we are living, whether we die, whether life goes according to our own plans. God is still God, even in the midst of the wilderness. David thirsts for God. He sees an opportunity 
in that moment. So remember God's faithfulness when you're there for providing for your family in the past. Remember God's faithfulness in getting you through that health trial in the past. Remember that God was there in the midst of that broken relationship. Remember God's faithfulness in getting you that job in the past, that God is still God when you're there. It was uh, just about a month ago when I was in Oxford presenting a paper, which was a high moment of my life. I had always kind of dreamed of being there, being in this conversation with scholars. And uh, I presented my paper the day before, high note, had a meeting in the morning, having a, a great time meeting with the professor, talking about the future, dreaming. And my phone went off in my pocket. And it was my sister. It was a FaceTime call, which is like a video phone call. And it was about 8 a.m. And I thought, well, I'll just call my sister back. She does that a lot. She wants me to see my nephew or whatever. So I put my phone back in my pocket. And then I thought, wait a second. It's 2 or 3 in the morning in Philadelphia. That's not good because I knew my brother was in the hospital. But many of you met Andy when he was here. I mean, he's the, the athlete. He's six foot three. He's never been sick in his entire life, never missed a day of work, just the most healthy guy you could ever meet. And so when Andy was readmitted to the hospital, I, I remember thinking, it's Andy. He's going to be fine. No big deal. I'm, you know, everything's going to be all right. And as I picked up the phone call, I stepped out of the meeting and I saw my sister's face. I knew something was wrong. And she said, David, you need to get everyone you know praying for Andy because he may not make it. And I, my dad is also a physician. And I said, what does dad think? And, and she said, dad's scared. And so I got on the first plane that I could, and Andy Prime took me to the airport and prayed for me before I left. And I'm sitting on that plane, eight hours across the ocean, thinking, is this my life? Wait, my brother? I'm looking back on, on our time together, my only brother, my best friend, that this might be, I might look back on that Edinburgh trip where he was just sitting with me in that pew. That might be the memory. Wilderness, right? I had already told Paul and the pastoral staff weeks before that, that I want to speak on dry and weary land, speak on finding God in the wilderness. I didn't know anything about the wilderness, and there I was. And I got to my brother's bedside, and he was on a ventilator, and he woke up, and one of the first things that he communicated to me through his hand motions um, and through writing down was that he wanted me to play him a hymn that we had played together and read our Bibles together when we were here in Edinburgh having breakfast. And as I played the hymn on my phone with the song, I was softly singing along to it, and I could see his mouth mouthing the words to the song through his ventilator. And the words that he was mouthing were this, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know thus says the Lord." See, God is still God in the wilderness, no matter what the outcome is. In life, in death, in joy, in trial, God is still God. God is still be praised. There's still hope. God is that spring of living water. The wilderness is an opportunity to thirst for God. The wilderness is an opportunity to be quenched by who God is, who Jesus is. And lastly, the wilderness is an opportunity to glorify God. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. David views this desperate situation as an opportunity to glorify God. David reorients his life to say, what I'm going through in this wilderness is part of a bigger story. There's something bigger going on outside of me. Life's about God. Life's about Christ. Life is not about me, as hard as that is. David says, why? Because your love is better than life. That word love has this rich 
connotation of relational love, steadfast love, covenant love, because God is for you and with you in Christ. It's better than life itself. And David says, because of that, my lips will glorify you, even in the midst of this dry and weary land. Now, ultimately, if you followed my family, if you followed my brother, if you follow me, I'm going to fail you. I'm not an example. And, and ultimately, David, if you follow him, he's ultimately going to fail you. A couple chapters before this, Psalm 56, David cries out because he sinned against God. Nathan has, has uh, approached him and said, you've murdered someone, you've committed adultery, all these things. David fails in his, as an example. Adam and Eve in the garden, they fail. Israel goes into the wilderness, grumbles and says, wait, we look back on Egypt, that was... That was wonderful. We had food. We had everything we need. The promised land is going to be great, but what is this wilderness? Israel grumbles and fails. But Jesus, you remember this? Jesus goes into the desert of Judah, outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus wins on our behalf. Remember Luke chapter 4? The devil drives Jesus out into the Judean wilderness and tempts him with all the kingdoms of the world. Bigger, greater temptation than any of us could ever imagine. And how does Jesus respond? In the same physical location, Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Adam, Israel, David all fail. Jesus wins on our behalf. Remember John chapter 7, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths? This is a feast that commemorates what? Israel wandering in the wilderness, where Israel fails. And it gets to the end of this festival. John chapter 7 says this, and Jesus stands up at the end of the festival. And what does he say? He says, if anyone is thirsty, wilderness, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Jesus is saying, you're in the wilderness. I know you're going to fail. I know you'll fall short. What is Jesus saying? Just get your act together. Read your Bible. Pray. Just, just get through the wilderness. No, he says, come to me. And from within you, streams of living water will come to you. Talking about the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives to everyone who places their trust in him. So this isn't a get your act together and, and, and get through the wilderness on your own strength. When God leads you into the wilderness, we find Jesus there. He's been there. Who he is, what he's done, what he will do. When we search for him and we're quenched by him and we ultimately look to glorify him, and we're caught up in something that's bigger than ourselves. So when we come to the wilderness and we're tempted to look back and say, God, there's something for me, what you've done there. And there's something for me in the future. I believe that, but, but the wilderness, we can trust that the wilderness is an opportunity for us to, to search for God. God, I long for you to be quenched by who he is and ultimately to look to the wilderness as an opportunity to glorify God in Jesus Christ, which is the greatest opportunity that we could have. Let me pray for us.